everyone. Welcome back to the Thrillogy Podcast. My name's Krista, and I'm here with my two co-hosts. Morgan. And Cameron. So we are officially kicking off our second season of the Thrillogy Podcast. I know we said we were going to release an episode last week, and we ended up not doing it. We decided to take the week off instead. But just like before, we will be releasing new episodes every Monday Uh, With the new season, nothing really is going to change. We're going to try a couple things out. We're going to take some of the inspiration from our bonus episodes and have more of a relaxed conversation, see what you guys think. So as always, feel free to let us know your thoughts on social media. And uh, Krista, I'll let you get started with the episode. I wanted to start this episode off by extending our condolences to the family of Gabby Petito after we have learned that her body was found and identified just this week. I hope this case brings light to missing persons cases in general so victims can start getting the justice that they deserve. At the point we are recording, Brian Laundry is still on the run, and I'm sure it goes without saying, but if you have any information, please notify the Northport Police in Florida or the FBI. Today, in an effort to take a break from all the National Park talk, we are going to look into the murder of Barbara Kime. Now... This took place in a small town of Middlebury, Indiana, and most sources that I found on this case say it was the type of town where nothing could go wrong, and this case really shook Middlebury to the core. Now, Barbara Kime was a dedicated single mother of two and a nurse that excelled in her field, so flags went up immediately when it seemed that Kime was non-responsive to any outreach. One of the first red flags was that Barbara did not pick up her five-year-old son from her ex's house, and that's what led her sister to report her missing on August 5, 2005. When authorities reported to her home, the home was almost desolate, quiet, almost eerie. Authorities noted that she did not even have her ID with her and that the car was still in the lot. And, of course, from all other true crime cases, we've learned that when people leave without their phone or wallet, it's usually never good. But another peculiar and alarming fact was that Barbara's 17-year-old daughter, Hannah Stone, was also missing. Their family, of course, went into full swing to try and find Barbara and Hannah. They were talking to media, handing out flyers, anything they have to do to bring home the pair that had vanished. Little did they know, it was much more sinister than that. It's certainly worth pointing out that Hannah's relationship with her mother was far from perfect. Hannah was young and impressionable. She was under the spell of her new boyfriend who was a bad influence. Barbara wanted Hannah to stay away from him, but Hannah did as teenagers do, which is disregard their parents' wishes and continue on with the same behavior. This just continued to put a further strain on Barbara and Hannah and actually led Barbara to kick out her 17-year-old daughter from the house. The search was on. That is, until a bad check was cashed in Barbara's name for $800. The check, of course, raised red flags and led the authorities right to Aaron McDonald. Now, if the case was that easy, this episode probably would have been a five-minute bonus episode because that's all I would have for you. But sadly, it doesn't stop with Aaron. McDonald reported that he made the check out to himself with Barbara's checkbook because he wanted to buy marijuana and cocaine. But the motive even before that was that McDonald was bitter that he was shorted money in a deal with another male suspect. The additional male suspect promised McDonald $400 but was never paid out. 
The person who made the promise to pay up was Spencer Crumpets. As one would imagine, Crumpets was a less than savory individual. He had a rough bringing with records of abuse as early as five years old, attending over 13 schools, and became a drifter at only 16. The fact that he was already experimenting with LSD did not help his fast and downward spiral. At this point, we know Barbara and Hannah are gone and likely in trouble, but Aaron McDonald is at the very least a very good lead and continuing to crack under the pressure during interrogation. Two days later, on August 7, 2005, authorities took McDonald's testimony and followed it into a cornfield in Kosciuszko County, where Barbara's body was found, dead, and shot once in the back. But Hannah was still nowhere to be found. Now, before I get into the rest of the timeline, I was curious, since we already have two male suspects, what did you guys think that their possible motives could have been? So, who are these guys? Like, are do they have any sort of relationship with Barbara and Hannah? Or are these, at least at this point, just kind of seemingly random guys? Well, I'll definitely get to who one of them are. But just to point out, because I don't, it actually wasn't mentioned at this point, but they were about the ages of 17 and 18 years old. Oh, okay. So they could have potentially known Hannah. Yep. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. I think up until this point, it's it almost seems random, right? Like kind of with the information that you've gone over so far, but I'm sure as we get into it, we'll find out more. I don't know. It kind of seems uh, money related. It might be. I don't know. Um, It could also be like a drug deal gone wrong. We know that one of the suspects at least was experimenting with drugs. So we don't know. But that's kind of where my hunch is. And two, like you said, a lot of of times when it's like money, a lot of times that leads in the drugs, right? People are looking for money in order Mm -hmm. to get their hands on drugs. So, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, it's also worth pointing out, too, at this point, that if you think about it, the house was described as, like, desolate and eerie when authorities gained entry. So it seems that it wasn't, like, a a home invasion that was botched or something like that because there would have been definitely signs of a struggle or, like, banging in the door or something like that. So... Like I said, Hannah was still nowhere to be found when her mother was found shot dead in a cornfield. But Crumpets was not the only suspect that McDonald gave up. There was a third, and the third suspect was Hannah Stone herself, who was found at a local motel along with the male duo. So now that we know Hannah is a suspect, does that change what you guys thought of the motive? Yeah, no, I, it makes sense. Like we've talked about the p- potential motive having to do with money or with drugs. And it almost just sounded maybe like it was something gone wrong. And I, I mean, we touched a little bit on on their ages and how they compare to Hannah, right? So if Hannah's mom is missing and Hannah is one of the suspects, I don't know. It sounds kind of suspicious to me. Yeah, I agree. It it. Like I said before, this is kind of pointing toward drug and money related to me. Unfortunately, I feel like when people are addicted to drugs, they might turn on their family. And I don't know. It's it's really hard to say with the limited information right now. But um, I'm still leaning toward drug and money related. 
Yeah, definitely not a bad guess. So the timeline is just about that dark. It's unimaginable that a child could do that to their parent, but according to Oxygen Network and court documents, the timeline is as follows. We know that Hannah was kicked out of her mother's apartment, so on the night of the murder, she returned home asking to retrieve clothes. When Barbara was about to allow Hannah access inside, Spencer actually forced his way in, wielding a gun, ordering Kime to stay quiet. McDonald's role was to assist and to provide the gun, and for this assistance, he would be paid $400. Barbara was duct taped and bound while her own daughter acted as, as a decoy if anyone was suspicious and came by to inquire about the noises. In the meantime, Crumbits and McDonald's went to Kime's wallet and took her debit card and PIN number. Hannah continued to stay behind, but McDonald and Crumpets loaded Kime into the car, still bound, depleting the victim of her sight and movement. With her bank cards, their first stop was at a local ATM to withdraw the promised funds. This is where the plan begins to foil. The ATM would not let them take out more than $200, which cue McDonald feeling scorned as he only received $100 that night of the $400 agreement. So I just want to point out too, like this was 2005 and that was like, not the beginning of ATMs, but it's definitely up there with like debit cards, ATMs. It definitely was newer technology. And mind you that these are high school, like senior and high school age kids. So they probably did not realize the level of paper trail that uh, a debit card and a pin number would leave and that they're on camera. But alas, next they take Kime to the aforementioned Kosciuszko County cornfield where Crumpets shoots Barbara in the back, essentially execution style. I wish it was here that it was the last we heard of Spencer's sadistic ways, but it's not. Spencer almost strikes me as a Ricky Caso, who we discussed in our bonus episodes about two weeks ago, because he just acted like he had no remorse. But there's actually another thing that reminded me of Caso. Now, I don't want to get too ahead of myself with their sentencing, but just to jump ahead super quick, in Prison Diaries, Crumpets prides himself that he actually made Kime recite the Lord's Prayer in her final moments. Now, one of the interviewed parties in the Oxygen special had a good point, and that is that Crumpets is a great example of where evil takes down good. The interviewee made the comparison that he brought Kime out to a peaceful and quiet cornfield for starters, as she feared for her life and was probably pleading. So there's good and evil. And then he makes her recite the Lord's Prayer, which again is peaceful, and she was into going to church, but then he kills her with one shot. Kind of off track, but I did find the comparison to be interesting. I think that the interviewee was actually a journalist, or a reporter, rather. So... Before I go any further, it's clear that Spencer was deranged and unhinged. But what do you think about Hannah? Do you think that Hannah is truly evil or do you think she was just easily impressionable? It's so hard to say. And when you were, you know, going through that whole story about Kime and, you know, all the disturbing things that he did leading up to Barbara's death, I was just wondering how Hannah fit into it. Like, how did she get involved with him why was she in on this i don't know i 
I have no idea. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it could be what Morgan said, where maybe she was just impressionable or, you know, who knows? It's hard to say. The only other thing that kind of comes to mind is that maybe it was for love. Like, did did Hannah have a relationship with like a romantic relationship with either of these guys or? Yeah. So actually, remember the boyfriend I mentioned uh, earlier on? Spencer yeah. was her boyfriend. That. Uh, yeah, so. OK, so maybe doing it for love, like maybe trying to like. I don't know, run away and this is their way of getting money. Like almost like it went wrong, right? Like the, maybe the original plan wasn't to go this far and it was to like get some money from her mom or who knows. And he took it to the next level. I don't know. It's tough to say. Yeah. I'm not sure like how involved to like Hannah was doing the LSD with him. If that was something that was actively going on during their relationship. But I feel like it's so hard to say if someone at this age is well i mean besides crumpets which is i mean he's clearly like disturbed but someone like hannah even mcdonald it's hard to say if someone is truly evil at that age because your brain is still developing i mean likely if you're willing to do something like this you're probably erring on the side of evil but i'm just right just to give them a benefit of the doubt especially a male like your brain is not done especially if you're doing drugs like that it's gonna get in the way um but if she was like lost on the wrong path you know like late in high school if you're going through things i could see her being more easily impressionable than evil i think everyone's been in those shoes of being impressionable not going this far obviously thank god but just doing things that now we look back like why would we ever do that (laughs) now back to the story Besides the recital of the Lord's Prayer, McDonald's recounts that Crumpets said after the murder that he was looking forward to having sex with Hannah in her mother's bed. Mind you, Hannah knew that murder was going to be the outcome. McDonald also recalled that he heard Hannah saying that she loved that her mother was dead. The couple felt as if Barbara was getting in their way. So kind of like what you said, Cameron, that they kind of probably just wanted to like run away and right. no interruptions and like this was foiling their plan. Okay, this is so disturbing. I just have to pause and say that. Like this is so disturbing. I know. It was like the I think it was a part of um the oxygen like they have snapped, like the show snapped. That that series cuz I really only got YouTube clips, but if I'm making sense of it correctly, it was a part of that which reasonably so. It really seems too though like Truly, that Spencer was the ringleader, like undoubtedly. That's true. I just, it's something about hearing like Hannah said that she loved that her mother was dead. Like we have a tendency to, you know, believe that men are like more likely to be these evil kind of sadistic. Like I feel like that's kind of the stereotype. And then it's somehow more chilling when you're like, oh, this 17 or 18 year old girl is like, saying that she loves that her mother is dead. Like, I don't know. Just, it's creepy. Yeah. I wonder if she would have acted as co- as coldly, though, had she been there when it happened. Because remember, like, she was really just holding down the house while, like, if anyone came by or anything like that. And while McDonald and Spencer, like, took the mom to the cornfield. So, I mean, as sick as it may sound, I don't know if she would have acted so cold if she saw it happen yeah that's true. No, I, and it makes sense right because it's like i mean 
like not to excuse her, but it's one thing to um, imagining anyway. It's probably one thing to kill someone versus knowing that someone said it's almost like I don't know, like when somebody in your life dies, right? Like it, it almost doesn't hit you right away. You don't really realize it. So it, maybe she was like, again, as sick as it sounds like what Morgan said, maybe she was like on the high of feeling like, oh, my mom's gone. Like we, I can finally do what I want. But it hadn't fully hit her that like your mom is gone. Like you had part of killing her. Like she's not coming back. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. Like in those whatever, it was what, two days? So 48 or 72 hours. It was like convenient that her mom wasn't in the way. Right. I guess they had 200 extra dollars. <laughs> yeah. To hang out in a motel. But when it sinks in or when you sober up or come down from whatever you were on, it's not going to be the same. Well, and even more so when the consequences start setting in and you and she really starts to go through those motions of like, okay. What did I do? Unless she's like <laughs> a sociopath and that never happens. But who knows? Yeah, I really wish I knew more of like, did they think this was going to work? Because like I said, they were like senior in high school age using an ATM. That is probably like the dumbest <laughs> way. And they probably didn't even realize yeah. they just saw dollar signs and like freedom. It's like you watch any like true crime show on TV and you know that <laughs> if you're trying to disappear or trying to steal something from somebody going to a machine that literally has a camera on it probably isn't the smartest idea. So I don't do I don't know if you mentioned this and if you did and I might have missed it. Sorry. Were they like actively under the influence of drugs like when they stole money from the ATM? I don't think so. And only because like besides the ATM thing, everything they did was pretty neat. Okay. Like, cause I was going to say maybe like maybe they were under the influence of some sort of drug and they're like, all right, let's go to the ATM. Right. And like, obviously they're not thinking like they're not, uh, they're no, not processing because, what could happen. Cause, um, the whole thing that reeled in McDonald was that he was going to get $400 for the gun and for his help. So they calculated that ahead of time, which if you're under the influence like this calculated, then that's that's another conversation. <laughs> but they calculated that. Then the daughter knew that she could probably weasel access asking for clothes. Then he barged in behind her. And then they knew to like bound her, put her in a van and bring her out somewhere without getting pulled over or drawing any suspicion. Like I doubt, especially LSD, like I just doubt that they were. Yeah, no, I mean, when you kind of break it all down, it would be, I mean, I guess crazier things have happened, but it would be yeah. kind of a stretch. Because remember, their main, the main slip up is the bad check. That's what got them caught yeah. in two days. You know, I mean, they would have been caught anyway, because <laughs> they would just would have. There were no way they were that neat, but that was their main slip. So, so just a little bit about the sentencing. Um, despite McDonald's testimony and assistance to authorities, he was still hit with a 62-year sentence. Stone was sentenced to 100 years, eligible for parole in 2053, and ordered no contact with her younger brother. Lastly, Crumpets was, of course, sentenced to life without the chance of parole. All three were charged with murder, conspiracy to commit murder, and criminal confinement while armed with a deadly weapon. And if you want to read more of the 
actual court documents or like transcripts, they'll be listed in the sources below or sources on the website. Now, because this is such a unique case, there have been very few specials on Hannah Stone. And as you may have guessed, friends and almost all family, with the exception of her biological father, have cut off contact with her. One friend who was interviewed in the TV special reported that she felt Hannah was unfazed when she visited a few years back about her sentence and only seemed to ask her friend for money on her books. And in one of the specials, Hannah writes a letter to Spencer. Although they have been charged and fully convicted, I would assume the letter is more symbolic for her rather than being legitimately mailed, but the clip does not mention. The clip is short, but it is interesting to hear in Hannah's words and voice something that she would like to say to Spencer. Dear Spencer, I pray that reading this letter brings you as much peace as I hope to receive from writing it. It has been weighing heavy on my heart that I need to forgive you. All these years, you are the one person I have refused to forgive, not only because I thought that me forgiving you was saying what you did was okay, but also because I don't know if you're sorry. Not once have you reached out to me or my family and offered an apology. Maybe if I knew you regretted that night, maybe then it would be easier to forgive you. So I know the clip was short, but I kind of felt like the first time I watched it that she still felt maybe like something was there, like between them. I don't know if you guys got the same vibe. Yeah, a little bit like it. I don't know. It didn't. Yeah, it wasn't really what I was expecting, to be honest. Yeah, because like it's it's like almost childlike, which again, right, not to harp on their age, but that was probably like her first love, and it's going to be her last because she's locked up. That's true. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you obviously. I mean, she goes to prison. She spends years in prison, but if she went to prison at seventeen, eighteen years old, it's not really like she. I mean, she matures, but in a very different way, you know. Yeah, for sure. So, as you would imagine, drugs or not, Spencer remained a disturbed person. It is said that he would write prison manifestos, where is, which is where I initially mentioned the Lord's Prayer. It is also reported that he was fascinated with killing, and he even reported the night of the murder that it felt good to take someone's soul. And also pointing out that during the special that I just played the clip from, Hannah actually gets word at that time that Spencer actually takes his own life while he was in prison. So, again, very comparable to Ricky Casso. Like, same thing. LSD, sadistic, no remorse, out there, and then takes his own life. Very similar MOs. So, overall, I was just curious on your thoughts about Hannah and Spencer. Yeah, it's... It almost reminds me of the Gypsy Rose case in some ways, but it's also very, very different. Like, it, I think the, the really the only parallel there is the fact that it's the boyfriend killing the mom, like so that they can be together type of thing. But the Gypsy Rose case is very, very different. I don't think it even like it doesn't even remotely compare. Uh, you know, so I don't know. That's kind of the only thing it really makes me think of. But I don't know. Other than that, it's honestly just like a it's a sad case, a sad case of what to me almost sounds like a deranged person, an impressionable young person and just lots of <laughs> a lot of bad in between. 
Yeah, for sure. I feel like Gypsy wrote uh Gypsy Blanchard similarly though was probably super impressionable. I mean, she was even more childlike than Yeah. Hannah. And you know, to be honest, like not to insert my own opinions and like then change the whole case we're talking about, but I don't think that Hannah, I don't know her level of evilness. I think that there was a little bit, but I think is mostly is impressionableness. But Gypsy seemed probably most likely just impressionable and and yeah. desperate. Yeah, that's what I was gonna say. Is and that's why it's hard to even compare them. Like obviously, it reminds me of it a little bit because there are. I mean, you have that that main basic principle of the case of the fact that it was the boyfriend and somebody who's maybe impressionable kind of like what you had mentioned but it's also so different because like i don't know i again without going into the gypsy rose case you know in this episode i have a hard time even blaming gypsy rose for what she did i feel more sorry for her than anything whereas like with this case i don't feel sorry for her at all like i feel sorry for her mom i feel sorry for her family but i mean impressionable or not you know it wasn't like a it doesn't compare you know yeah definitely i just don't understand like i wonder if because it's like hannah was already kicked out of the house so it's just like go live with spencer i don't understand like i wonder if he kind of was like no like we should definitely do this like she's still nagging and you know she still expects you to come home like we have to take it this far like it seems so senseless more senseless than if she didn't kick her out of the house (laughs) yeah I agree and I was going to say too even from that clip you played like you said she seems really immature but also just very emotional and like she seems like she's in like a fantasy world a little bit like so I definitely agree that Spencer was like the ringleader and she was like kind of along for the ride or whatever. But so it's like I don't I don't know if I believe that she's like 100 percent a sociopath and feels no remorse. But at the same time, it's just like very eerie that she's like so emotional and like immature, but doesn't. I don't believe that she was 100% a victim in this. Like, like she still cares about Spencer. I don't like I don't know what to make of it because it's like on one hand, I could believe that he was the ringleader and she kind of got roped into it where like like you said she was out of the house and maybe he said, "Oh, we need to do this because, you know, your mom's still nagging us." Um, but at the same time, I don't feel bad for her like Karen was saying. So, yeah. It's hard to know what to make of it. Yeah. At the very least, like I noticed from the clips, at least that were available on YouTube that I was able to watch, that at no point does she cry that she was like taken advantage of or that he was abusing her and convinced her to do it. Because I feel like sometimes we run into those types of defenses, but she just... And then it was also a little bit eerie too that the friend was like, yeah, when I I visited her once I turned 18 and she just was like living her life like normal. I mean, behind bars, obviously, but she just seemed unfazed. But I mean, I guess what choice does she have? Like you had to make the most of your situation. But it was interesting that the friend was like, yeah, I, I had to cut off contact with her. So it's like, mm. but 
We had a there was a case in New York. I'm like almost positive that was very similar to this. Like the daughter and the boyfriend wanted to like run away together. And I was trying to find the article. They wound up taking the mother's life, but I was trying to find the article. But every time I searched it, actually, Cameron, I kept finding the gypsy stuff, I guess, because that's such a famous like. Yeah. Well, you probably look up like boyfriend kills mom. I mean, yeah, I thought it was like the New York Post. I thought for sure it was going like, to come up right away, but it wasn't. And I actually kept running into the the gypsy case, which, like you said, it's. It's very minimally similar, but glad you brought it up because it was pretty close. Yeah. So you bringing up the friend that said that she had to cut all contact with her, um, I feel like that speaks volumes a little bit. And it kind of makes me believe now that Hannah is a sociopath or has those tendencies because like, I feel like sociopathy can like present differently in men and women and like i said earlier we have like a tendency to believe that's mostly men but like now that you're saying that and reminding us of that i do feel like she was probably more involved and has little to no remorse just like spencer does if her friend is saying like yeah i had to cut all contact i can't be around her anymore yeah and if we do go down the path of Hannah was most likely evil. Let's be real. She didn't just wake up one day like, oh, I'm going to kill my mom. Like it was something that was probably like brewing like, oh, I'm with this bad boy. And then these things kind of happen. She Mm -hmm. didn't just like wake up one day, meet Spencer, and then things went awry. So Right. I mean, like you said, she was already kicked out of the house. Something was happening. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So, everyone, that is our first episode back for Season 2 of Thrillogy. As always, we are on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and we would love for you to share your theories there with us. Thank you, everyone, for listening and for joining us today. You can find all photos and sources mentioned for this case on our website, thrillogypodcast.com. We release new episodes every Monday, and each week we post two clues leading up to our next episode. The first clue is... We're going to one of the most horrific farms in history. Be sure to check out our Instagram for the second clue later this week. Thanks again for listening. And as always, you can keep up with all things Trilogy on social media at at Trilogy Pod and make story requests on TrilogyPodcast.com. 